My advice to a teenager who just got the news to keep on living your life. Keep on being a teenager. Keep on doing what you like to do. Tell your doctor what is important to you, what you want, what milestones you want to be there for, what you don't want to miss. Now, unfortunately, some things you are going to have to be in the hospital for and you're going to have to miss some things. But having that conversation with your doctor of, hey, this is really important for me because when, as a patient, if you get to do what you enjoy and you get that spark of, I got to go to my favorite movie this weekend, or I got to go to my prom, they're going to do better in treatment because you are happy. You are getting to live your life too. You are not so down and sad. And I truly believe that like a positive outlook and a positive attitude is what is going to get you through that and get you through it, you know, well. So keep on living life. My advice for doctors and healthcare practitioners, anyone that is there giving bad news is just to try and put yourself in that family's position. Try to just remember what you're telling, but remember that you're dealing with a human and look at that human side of it and how you would want someone to tell you or your loved one. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I'll be your host today. Well, every week, I'm thankful to have the honor of interviewing one amazing guest after another. We've had physicians, HR executives, life coaches, and patient experience experts. And every time I do an interview, I leave feeling inspired, and I learn just so much. This week is extra special because my guest is extra special to me. And that's not only because she's an incredible young person with an incredible story, but also because she just happens to be my niece. Now, a bit of a warning to my audience, as some of you know, especially people who know me well, I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm not sure if it's that Italian gene. My father and grandfather tended to get emotional, especially during happy times. So as sort of a public service announcement, the level of pride that I feel for my niece, Lauren, is through the roof. And her ability to triumph over life's challenges better than people twice her age is beyond incredible. So if my voice quivers a little bit, please excuse me. Lauren Heaslip was born prematurely at 31 weeks on March 21st, 1996. She is the fourth and youngest daughter of my brother-in-law, Tom Heaslip, and sister-in-law, Catherine Heaslip. That very first day of spring of 1996, start off in New Jersey, is very uneventful, but that would not last long. After being confined to bed rest in the hospital for placenta percreta, a condition that occurs when the placenta attaches through the uterus and into other organs, 
Catherine began to hemorrhage profusely. A stat cesarean section would be required in order to save the life of both mother and baby. A few minutes later, Lauren Pender Heeslip was born at 3 pounds 11 ounces and 31 weeks gestation at a small community hospital not designed to care for very sick and premature infants. As Lauren was placed on a ventilator and transported to a level 3 neonatal intensive care unit, her mother Catherine also remained critical due to massive blood loss. Catherine clinging to life on a ventilator at one hospital, while Lauren was transferred on a ventilator to another one. But by the grace of God, both mother and daughter survived. And Lauren survived and is doing well. Lauren spent nearly six weeks in the neonatal intensive care unit before being discharged. She continued to do well and excelled in everything that she did. Then on New Year's Eve in 2012, after receiving an x-ray for a painful neck that showed her cervical vertebrae extremely unstable, she was rushed to Children's Hospital Philadelphia for emergency surgery to reconstruct her neck. One cough or sudden movement, Lauren could have been paralyzed for life. Two weeks later, on January 16th, she was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and once again, Lauren, now a thriving and accomplished 16-year-old, would be forced to face another medical challenge. As is Lauren and her family, her diagnosis and second medical challenge did not define her, and she continued to live her life with as much normalcy as possible. And thankfully, after 19 rounds of chemotherapy and all the side effects associated with treatment, Lauren was cancer-free and remains cured until this day. As is Lauren, she rebounded even more strongly and went on to graduate Duquesne University with a Bachelor of Science in Health Science in December of 2017. She then continued her studies and received her nursing degree at the very competitive School of Nursing of Duke University and graduated in May of 2019. Lauren is currently working as a registered nurse at Children's Hospital of Cincinnati, where she works in the Pediatric Hematology Oncology Ward, treating children with cancer. What an amazing story. Welcome, kiddo. It's just uh, great to have you. I'm so excited to have a special person. I just read your bio, so you're going to be surprised when you hear it. Uh, I didn't want you to hear it because if I read it in front of you, I might cry because I'm so proud of you. So I didn't want to read it now, but how are you doing? Things are good? Things are good. Thanks for having me here. I'm honored to be here. How's your job going? It is great. I love it so much. It's crazy to believe that I'm there now. And every day I still get shocked at where I work and what I get to do. And I just love it so much. And we're going to talk about the specifics of your job and why I think that you have so much to offer later on. But firstly, just, you know, we talked about your challenges in life during the intro and you're too little to remember when you were a premature baby. So you don't remember anything about that. I do know your story and I mentioned it in the bio. Let's go to the point where you were 16 years old and just kind of hanging out and thriving and playing sports and you were having some neck pain, right? Yeah, I was playing sports. I was normal, healthy. Everything was fine until the neck pain started. And at first, no one really thought anything of it. I didn't really think anything of it went back and forth with our athletic trainer. And 
everything seemed fine. I was healthy, just having some pain, but I was playing sports. So that can be expected at times. And it just progressively got worse and worse and worse over the course of two, three months and still was playing sports, all of that. And all the doctors I went to, physical therapist, the athletic trainer, I went to my primary, everything was checking out completely fine. And I still looked healthy, all blood counts, all that, everything looked completely normal. So it was all just chalked up to maybe a sports injury or something until it wasn't. So all of a sudden you get your x-ray and I know you went through a couple of hospitals, but you ended up at Children's Hospital Philadelphia and you had to have emergency surgery. I think your parents always, even though you were 16 years old, but they never really hid anything from you, right? So tell me about the conversation that you remember when they told you that you had to go into emergency surgery. Well, that all kind of started with them not hiding anything from me as well before I got to CHOP. I was at another hospital in Philly and I was alone in the room. I was stuck flat on my back because of my broken neck. No one was letting me move. And one of the doctors took my parents out into the hall and talked to just my parents out in the hall. And I couldn't hear much that they were saying, but I heard the word tumor. And I don't remember too much else after that, but... After that, I told my parents, I said, anything that they have to say, I want to hear it. I want you guys to talk about it in the room because it's happening to me and I want to know. I don't want it to be hidden from me, anything like that. I kind of put that out there and I was like, I I want to know and I don't want you guys to talk about it in the hall. I want to be told in front of me because... I don't even know if at that hospital, they really said anything to me. After that, they sent me to CHOP. And to be honest, I don't really remember much about being told having to go into surgery, any of that. I was admitted, I believe, straight to the ICU at CHOP to go through halo traction and to prepare for the surgery. It took, I think, at least a day to prepare for surgery. So your parents came in and told you that was difficult conversation number one. Your parents were the ones that told you that about the tumor or that it might be cancer or was it the doctor? That's the part I don't remember all too much. By that point, I had the MRI done outside of Philly and had about probably at least a two-hour ambulance ride all the way to Philly. I was stuck flat on my back. They weren't letting me eat. I was miserable. I was in pain. I was uncomfortable. So a lot of that time between finding out that my neck was broken and waking up from surgery, I don't really remember much, especially once I got admitted to the ICU. They had all kinds of painkillers and everything to make me comfortable through halo traction because that's a painful experience. So a lot of that times, I really don't remember much of like who exactly told me. I remember hearing the doctor in the hallway say tumors. And I think at that point and you know where I was, just laying there. I wasn't fully processing a lot. And I remember thinking that, you know, to me and in my 16 year old head, tumor means cancer. But part of me was thinking like, well, that can't be right. Like I, I can't have tumors. Like I don't have cancer. And that's really, my aunt had come in and was just telling me like, everything was going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And that's really 
everything I remember from before surgery. And then two weeks later in uh, January, that's when they told you that you had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, correct? Yes. And that conversation, I remember like it was yesterday. (laughs) Oh, that's what this whole podcast is about. So tell me about that conversation and comment in the eyes of a 16-year-old. We had a a Dr. Michelle Nyer on this podcast, a pediatric oncologist, and and I specifically asked her about how you speak to teenagers about cancer, and she had some much insight. But I want to hear it from you. So tell me everything you remember about that conversation and what helped you and what you think might have gone better. So going into the whole thing, I had come back because they had biopsied what was on my liver. And before that, I was kind of thinking, you know, I was back to the point of, I think I'm okay. Like they fixed my neck, something's wrong, but they had ruled out so many things. And the doctors had been calling my house and my parents every single night to let them know, here's what we've tested. Here's what we've ruled out. Here's what we're going to be looking at next. And they just weren't finding the answers. So that's when they called me in for the biopsy and I had to stay after. And it was the day after the biopsy. It was late in the evening. My dinner had just arrived. I was really excited. I got some fajitas, the food at CHOP. It was very good. And my doctor walked into the room and it was just a general oncologist. So he didn't continue to be my doctor throughout the rest of the year. And I knew immediately that they knew something and that it wasn't the best news because it was his day off and he had come back in. So I knew, and I remember thinking like, he's in normal people clothes. Like I knew it was his day off too. And I was like, he just came in to tell us something. So that kind of triggered me right away of like, I know that you guys know something and it can't be great. And he told us that the biopsy had come back, that it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And he let us like sit there for a minute. And he said, I'm going to give you guys a few minutes to process and then I'm going to come back. And sure enough, I, you know, my dad and I sat there and I cried a little bit and then was like, you know, my 16 year old head again. I don't think I fully processed it right there in that time. I started mm-hmm. eating my dinner again because I was really hungry. And sure enough, probably not even five minutes later, that doctor came back with who becomes my primary oncologist, Dr. Susan Reingold. She is an incredible person. I look up to her so much. So she comes in and she asks me, she goes, Hey, Lauren, I, she introduces herself and asks me what I was just told, which I think it was one of the greatest things she ever could have done because if she didn't make me say it out loud right there, then I may never have. That was what truly made it real. And I had to say that again. He said, I have cancer. And I started crying again. And immediately she just put, my nerves and my fear at ease. She said, no, 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 this is a good thing. We know what it is. We know how to treat it. We have your entire treatment plan laid out already. And if plan A doesn't work, we have plan B. And if plan B doesn't work, we have plan C. And just immediately putting that in and putting it in the perspective of we have a plan and we know what we're going to do, put me at ease as well of saying like, okay, yeah, like this you know, it, 
it may not be good news, but we can treat it now. We have the answer. And that was the big thing was having the answer. Sounds like from what you're saying, you felt this immediate bond with her and a partnership. And, you know, in my book, we talk about, so there's a couple of things that from this story that make me feel good because, you know, I teach this stuff. I teach Breaking Bad News. I teach communication. I've written a book about it. But it makes me feel really great when I have patients who kind of validate what I'm teaching because fortunately I've not had cancer, but I work with parents who've lost loved ones, who've who've lost babies, et cetera. And what she did there to you was she reviewed and she made sure that you knew what was going on before she moved forward. And I don't know how long was that conversation? It doesn't sound like it was very long, but you formed an instant bond with her. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think, I don't remember exactly how long it was, but it definitely wasn't an hour long conversation. It was probably only 10, 15 minutes, you know, to introduce herself. You know, she is the leukemia lymphoma attending doctor at CHOP. So to introduce herself, say that she's going to be our oncologist and kind of let her know we have that plan. And then moving forward in days after that, we had much, much longer meetings and all that. And CHOP is an incredible place. And when I teach Breaking Bad News and communication, there's three goals that we want to meet when we first give bad news. And one is we want the patient to feel that compassion that we have for them and that it's genuine. It's not fake. And correct, she passed that first one. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Two, we want to, for the physicians and nurses out there, we want the patient to feel that we are the expert in the room, that I got your back. And I always say the patient should feel that they could figuratively put their arms around your shoulder and you will lead them to the next step. Clearly she did that, correct? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then third, she's not going to leave you. So a great example of difficult conversation that went well from an amazing physician. And I think that says a lot about your frame of mind. I know you and your family. Obviously, you guys are related to me. I know you you guys are very positive. How did the first conversation go with your parents after that? My dad, so my dad was the one that was there. My mom, she says, unfortunately, it was one of the one nights that she went home. And my dad was the one staying with me that night. And he has said, you know, looking back on it, that he had to play off my strength and that I fully admit this now, was in a state of denial, I think for a lot of the year and just kind of like pushing through, you do what you have to do and you get through it. But also that whole like risk of mortality and all that, I don't think really hit me as a 16 year old and that maybe he understood more. So being older and looking at his child now hearing that diagnosis, I can only imagine what it was like for him hearing that, but him seeing that I was okay with it and that I was okay that they played off that. And I don't think my parents and I ever had like full on conversation, but we all just kind of went into the like, okay, like we're going to do this. Here's what Dr. Reingold says that we got to do. And here's what we're going to do. And she is, this may be jumping ahead a little bit, but one of the main reasons we really love her so much is because she started everything with your life does not stop and your life cannot stop because of this. And you have to keep on being a teenager. You need to keep on living life, keep on doing the things that you love to do. And like, that's what's going to get you through. And so that's what we 
did. You know, I was lucky enough to be outpatient for all of it, but I got to keep on going to school throughout everything. I got to keep on somewhat playing sports. I was still on my sports teams, but couldn't, you know, really play, but was still on my sports teams. My family was able to go on the yearly vacation that we always went on, my prom, my driver's test, my birthday, like all kinds of things like that, that fell while I was undergoing cancer treatment. She would make sure that I was feeling good for. I remember having to ask her my birthday and my driver's test fell on a Friday and I got all of my treatments on Fridays. So I remember asking her, I was like, well, Dr. Ryan Gold, I'm supposed to take my driver's test, but I have chemo that day. Like, is there any way that we can do it a different day? And she was like, 100%, absolutely. You're going to take your driver's test. You're going to pass. You're going to get your license. And she let me switch it to that following Monday. And it wasn't, wouldn't normally be her like clinic day that she was there. She would be on the inpatient side or some other side, but she would, you know, make sure I was able to get my treatment that day and come meet me, have our doctor's appointment that day, do all of that, which really, I think, set the tone for everything and led us to get through it as well as we were able to. And much is written about the advantages of a positive attitude when you're faced with any adversity and you and your family certainly had that. And sounds like Dr. Reingold helped you to do that. Mm -hmm. And you did well, you're cancer free, but it wasn't easy. And I don't want people out there to think that it was easy. You did have all the side effects of chemotherapy and I'm sure you were sick more than you let people know, but you pushed through, you went to your prom. Tell me about that. (laughs) I think the prom wasn't as bad because I was already going to school bald, but Mm -hmm. going to school bald was the big thing. One night, I, that was like the biggest thing I was dreading. You know, I knew I was going to lose my hair. I really didn't want to, but one night it just got way too annoying to deal with and it falling out. So I woke my parents up and I said, it needs to go. I need it gone. It needs to go. Two days later, it was Super Bowl Sunday. We called the crew in. My sisters came home from college. Some of my cousins came over and my uncle shaved my head. And that following Monday going to school, that was the day that I was scared to do because I was like, well, everyone in school knows that I'm sick, but I didn't really look that sick. But now I have no hair. And I tried the wig on. We had a wig. I tried it on. And I think it spent all of five seconds on my head. And I immediately took it off and said, that's not me. I can't do it. That's not my hair. It just didn't feel right. So going to school that Monday was tough. But my two best friends walked into school. My mom or dad drove us to school that day. They walked in with me and I actually had a whole crew of people waiting for me in school, celebrating with me and just so excited for me and showing all that support. So it was weird at prom to, you know, not have that prom hairstyle and do all of that. But I feel like at that point, it almost felt more normal because I had been doing it already. That's fantastic. So you graduate high school, you decide to go to Duquesne. When you went to Duquesne University, you were not sure that you were going to be a nurse yet, or you still weren't sure? I still wasn't sure. At that point, I knew, I always knew I wanted to go into healthcare and nursing. I always admired nurses, especially after the ones that I had. But 
still going into a hospital made me nauseous. Just walking in, the smells of it. I had been in a hospital way too much in the last year before that. And and then there was some fear of I couldn't do nursing. It was too hard. You know, my last year and a half of high school were really not, I wasn't fully there in my head. I was going through cancer treatment or I was sick before that. So I went in as an occupational therapy major, still have so much respect for occupational therapists. I love that career. But two years into college, it was after my sophomore year, I was studying in for one of my occupational therapy classes and was like, you know, this isn't really what I want to be doing. It's the nursing side of it that I really want to be doing. That is what I felt more drawn to. And I was terrified to tell my parents and to make that switch of switching my major. That's a huge thing to do, but it was truly nursing that I felt drawn to and that I have a passion for. And so typical of you, you don't just go to any nursing school, you go to Duke. (laughs) And one of the highlights of my last decade was visiting you at Duke and getting to go see a basketball game there. People know me, know that I'm a huge Duke fan. So thank you for picking that place. I probably would have never (laughs) gone to Duke to see a basketball game. So you go to Duke and you do really, really well. And the conversation that you had with yourself about, okay, what kind of nursing do I want to do? Was it a natural that I'm going to do pediatric oncology or was that a difficult decision for you? It was a really difficult decision. It did not come easily. I had endless conversations with friends of mine, professors, mentors I had from clinical instructors and people from the hospital. It was something that was always on my mind. I had a nurse from when I was inpatient in the hospital. I believe it was like right after my diagnosis because it was when I was going to preparing for my first chemo treatment, all of that. And she was my nurse for three days in a row. And on her last day, she tells me, she goes, Lauren, you're going to be all right. You're going to get through this. I was there one time too. And she had pulled up her scrub pant leg and she had a prosthetic leg. Hmm. She never had to tell me her whole story. She never really had to say much else. And at that time, I don't think I like, you know, fully realized what that did for me. But looking back, I was like, well, that is also who showed me and who I had in the back of my head to see that there was life after this. Going like through that and going through the year, sometimes it feels like, well, how can you ever be normal again? Or what is my life going to look like after I'm done with this? And I think I always had her in the back of my head. I was like, well, no one is going to know afterwards when life is going to be normal. I'm going to be fine. Mm -hmm. So I always thought of when I was making my decision, I was thinking of her too. And I'm like, you know, she knew what it felt like for me to be there in the hospital. And she knew what it's like to get chemo, all that kind of stuff. So that definitely contributed to my decision and how that impact that I could hopefully one day have on my patients and families. I had some other fears though of just, you know, the same smells that I experienced in accessing ports and I know what that pain is like and giving chemo, you know, would would it be too close to home because you still face some nightmares and stuff of people coming in with the same symptoms that you had and some symptoms that maybe, you know, I feel a twinge in my back and it scares me of do I have a tumor again and 
I know in my head that I am not going to relapse. I've passed my five-year mark. You know, my doctors are not concerned about me relapsing, but I had those fears of, is it going to be too close to home to treating kids that could be, you know, basically me laying in that bed. But after a lot of conversations with family members and mentors from school and friends, I felt that I could handle it mentally and being there and that I could have a lot to offer to these kids and families. Again, you took the hard road. (laughs) You didn't take the easy road. So you make that difficult decision. You wanted to stay at Duke, but there was no opening. And once again, you don't take the easy route. You just pick up and go to a city that you've never been to before, a city that you didn't know anyone, right? And you're at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, one of the best children's hospitals in the country, actually. So a big shout out to them. So first you're at CHOP, an amazing children's hospital as a patient. Now you go to Cincinnati Children's Hospital and you're working with pediatric hematology kids and oncology. And so now you're treating cancer and some of the cancer that you're treating is might be the same cancer that that you've had, as you said, you were worried about doing that and how you would feel with that. I work with a lot of parents that have lost children. And when we teach doctors on what to say, and I work with a lot of physicians who try not to get emotional and don't know how to answer questions about what they would do in this particular situation. And I often tell them that if you've gone through a similar situation, And nothing is the same. Nothing is exactly the same. There's no two cases that are same. But if you lost your mother from a particular type of disease, and now you're treating a patient, talking to a family that has a mother with the same disease, you can say, no, I've been through that. I have little babies who have seizure disorders. And for those people who don't know, I had a seizure disorder when I was a child. I was on, I don't even know if you know that, Lauren, do you know that? I do from your book. Oh, from the book. Okay. So... I was on seizure medications until I was 12 years old. When I say to a mother, I had seizures too. When they look at me and they say, well, he's doing well, he's fine. It makes them feel a little better. It doesn't mean that every baby with seizures is going to do well. And it certainly doesn't mean that every cancer patient is going to go do well. But how do you use your experience as a cancer patient to help your patients And how do you decide whether to reveal that or not reveal it? Or is it a special relationship that you just feel it? A little bit of that, just like that feeling that I know, it's a really hard decision whether to disclose to a family that or not. And I really try not to because it's not about me. It's about them. And I don't want to ever disclose that and make them think I'm trying to make it about me because it's not. It's completely about them. It's also difficult because on the inpatient side, we see a lot of our kids, especially being at Cincinnati Children's, and this would be a similar case with all top hospitals and programs. We see a lot of multiple relapses, second, third, fourth opinions, people who travel hundreds and thousands of miles to come be treated with us that a lot of times out comes are not going to be favorable for the child. But then we also do have our pre-BALL kids that are going to get better and do have favorable outcomes. But it's difficult in that situation because you don't want to give too much hope to a family whose kid that you know as a practitioner 
that is not going to do well or is likely to not going to do well. But a lot of times with the kids that do have favorable outcomes or just in times where families need that hope and need to see that there is going to be another side of it, that they are going to be okay. They're going to do what they need to do. A lot of families I have seen that um, they kind of question chemo and they see chemo as poison. And how can I give this poison to my kid? But it's their only option and it's okay. It is kind of a poison, but it kills what it needs to kill and it does the job. So that's kind of another side that I can kind of like tell them and say like, you know, like, well, I've been through it. Like I've gotten it and I'm okay. Poison isn't the best way to see chemo as it's a treatment. And it's one of the only options that they have. I try, like I said, not to disclose it all that much just because it's not about me, but I feel like that I can use my experience as a guiding point of how I was treated or how I would want to be treated if I were in that position and just being there for a family and sitting there to listen with them or to hold a hand, whether it's the patient's hand and the kid's hand or the parent's hand. As a pediatric nurse, as much as I'm a nurse to the little kiddos that are laying in the bed, but it's also to the parents a lot of the times. And having those conversations with them and sitting there and listening to them. And they have so many more fears than the kid does because a lot of times the kid doesn't really realize fully what's going on. Oh my God, that was an amazing answer. And so if you weren't paying attention because you were doing something else and you're listening to this podcast, rewind (laughs) and listen to that answer again because it was so great. And I think that the take home, you know, we promised the audience two things, to be inspired. We've already had that and to learn. And I think the learning point from what you just said was you have to read your audience, right? You have to know what the situation is. And you may have a patient who has a very favorable diagnosis of cancer that's very favorable and is not handling it well, is super depressed. Everybody has different personalities. I always say you bring your personality wherever you go. So they may be too depressed and you need to make them feel a little better. And that may be a point where you say, I had it too, and I did okay. Someone who doesn't want to take chemo, like you said, I took it, I got through it, you know, kind of encourage them to do that. Same thing with me when I have a baby who's having seizures with severe brain injury, I'm certainly not going to, that's not an appropriate time for me to say, hey, I had seizures too, because it's just not the same thing. So part of the P-R-O-G-R-A-M acronym that I use in the book there's a plan and you have a plan. And then while you're in the room, you're constantly seeing, you know, how's the patient reacting to you. And so there's people that are just extreme warriors and they get so depressed, even though you know that it's, they're going to do well. And so that's a gift that you can give them in this situation that I wouldn't be able to give them. You know what it's like to take chemo, even if you don't tell them that you had chemo, you know what it's like. And so The difference between empathy and compassion is imagination. And that's how you go from empathy to compassion means to feel pain. And you can't do that with your patient unless you have an imagination. But you don't need to imagine what it's like to have chemo, right? You know what it's like to have chemo. So I think the world is a better place because Lauren Heaslip went into pediatric hematology, oncology. And I do believe that. And I think the easy way 
is not always the best way. And I think the easy way for you would be to just say, I'm never going to think about this again. I'm going to do something else. But that's not in your DNA. And I'm just so proud of you. Any advice that you want to give any person out there who's having a difficult conversation with their doctor, give me one last advice to a teenager who was just told by their doctor or their mother that they have cancer. What what advice would you give them? Not an easy question. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) My advice to a teenager who just got the news to keep on living your life. Keep on being a teenager. Keep on doing what you like to do. Tell your doctor what is important to you, what milestones you want to be there for, what you don't want to miss. Now, unfortunately, some things you are going to have to be in the hospital for and you're going to have to miss some things. But having that conversation with your doctor of, hey, this is really important for me because when as a patient, if you get to do what you enjoy and you get that spark of, I got to go to my favorite movie this weekend, or I got to go to my prom, you're going to do better in treatment because you are happy. You are getting to live your life too. You are not so down and sad. And I truly believe that like a positive outlook and a positive attitude is what is going to get you through that and get you through it, you know, well. So keep on living life. My advice for doctors and healthcare practitioners, anyone that is there giving bad news is just to try and put yourself in that family's position. Try to just remember what you're telling. Remember that they are a human. A lot of times I think in practice, it's easy to just have your list of tasks and want to check them off and just do what you need to do and then get out and move on to the next one. But remember that you're dealing with a human and look at that human side of it and how you would want someone to tell you or your loved one what you're about to do, the news, whether it's bad news that someone has cancer or even just something that may be an inconvenience to them of oh, you have to get this medicine now or you have to be in the hospital for another day. It's just always remember that they're a human and try to look to that side of it too. There is no way that I could end any better than with that. (laughs) That's just amazing. And by the way, everyone, if you didn't do the calculations, this young lady is only 24 years old and you just learned more from her about living life and communicating and helping people when they need us the most. And so I couldn't be more proud of you, Lauren. Thank you so much for coming on this. Uh, I can't wait to see you again next time we have a family reunion, but I could not be more proud of you. So thank you again. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please go ahead and hit subscribe and download all the past episodes. If you want to learn more about the Orsini Way, you can reach me at theorsiniway.com. Just hit the contact list. We have a new podcast episode dropping every Tuesday. And I hope to see you again next week. So thank you, everybody. And thank you again, Lauren. Thank you. Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.